Welcome to the Inspiring Minds Podcast, hosted by Justin Starbird and presented by the Edison Awards. Listen as Justin talks with innovators and pioneers that are changing the world around us. True modern-day Thomas Edison's walking among us. Guests will answer the most difficult of questions facing startups, established brands, and folks with great ideas that are just getting started. Learn how these amazing innovators have gone from concept to commercialization and what it took to get there. Take notes as they share with Justin how they navigated through research, development, and in true Thomas Edison fashion, marketed and sold their newfound innovations. You're listening to the Inspiring Minds Podcast. Welcome back to this episode of Inspiring Mind, a podcast coming to you from the Edison Awards. My name is Justin Starbert. And today I'm excited to introduce our next guest, uh, Ken Gray, steering committee, steering committee member here of the Edison Awards, part of our esteemed leadership group um, and you know, former member of the uh, Caterpillar organization um, as the global director of innovation. So Ken, thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me at uh, just a uh unprecedented times. I hope everybody is home safe and healthy. So that's all I'm asking for right now. Yeah, likewise, I'd, I'd um, you know, prefer to be doing this uh, interview and having a discussion with you in person at the Edison Awards um, event. But alas, um, we will not be hosting that this year. Uh, so uh, you know, it's always great to catch up with you. So I'm really, uh, I'm really happy to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, so you know you're a member of the steering committee. You're um, retired from Caterpillar, which is when we met. Uh, we were remarking off air here. Uh, it's been almost ten years that yeah. you and I have been um, exchanging ideas and and contacts, and you know just uh, catching up on what we're seeing in the world. That's, uh, we, that's just crazy to me that it's, that it's <laughs> been uh, that's been that long. I mean, it's probably 2012 is when we first started working together and you know that was back when somebody thought I was innovative enough that my team actually wanted it so so I guess I need to do something lately <laughs> <laughs> well by by all accounts and and some of the things you've told me about it it, uh, it seems as though um, you have a couple of things in the works so you know tell me a little bit about you know what it means to be a member of the steering committee member and, and what that's done um, to you know open your eyes to innovation around the world so um, I think, first of all, it's, you know, it's all about the mission, first and foremost. And, you know, Edison is about inspiring young people to be innovators of the future, especially in, this, in you know, science, technology, engineering, math. So for me, it's a, it's a cause that really matters. And, they, and we do that by recognizing the best innovators in the world, the best innovations in the world. And, and so kind of the outcome of, of that for me is that I get to, I get to, you know, this, the steering committee, we provide direction on where the Edison um, awards is going to go. But the outcome for me is I get to meet some of these, a lot of these great innovators and I get to read all these submissions of these great ideas and, and how people are commercializing them. So it's a great, I, I mean, I always, I've said this to you before, I think, Justin, I get more out of it than I put into it. Like, I guess that's true of a lot of things in life, but uh, I, just, I really enjoy being a part of it. And, and I also have virtual friends like Sandy Bide, who's also on the steering committee. Sandy and I have never actually shaken hands, but I, we're, he's among my best friends in the world. So, you know, we get, um, we get, to, uh, we get to meet some really neat people and, 
exchange some really, you know, talk about some really interesting things. And no doubt um, the event and, and the opportunity to connect is second to none in terms of just the networking that goes on. Um, and, you know, that's how you and I actually forged our, you know, friendship. It was, uh, I worked with a lot of your team um, that was putting together back in the day, the hybrid excavator. And, and then it was at the event where, if I remember correctly, you brought in uh, 20 folks from your team, many of which, or many of whom had actually never met. Um, and they were from three or four different continents, if I recall correctly. Yeah, we, yeah I think it was, uh, you know, we, we, we were developing, it was a worldwide project, and there were people that had, had never, have never, and, and, and maybe will never meet face-to-face. But we, when we did that, that event was in Chicago. We had a couple of tables of, uh, of engineers that don't normally get out to do you know, a, a black tie gala, an event like that, and uh, ask them to bring their significant others with them, and you know, celebrated the achievement. And uh, it was a just a, it was just a great event. It was a great uh, recognition event. As a, as a, I was a director at Caterpillar at the time, and we used it and we used it as a networking event for sure. But for me as a leader, it was even more important as an opportunity to recognize all the great work that had been done on that pro- on that product. Yeah, that's one of the neat things that comes out every year is just how uh, unique an event it is, you know, for companies and, and uh, you know, people to use both as a way to say thank you and also to celebrate, you know, what's been going on. You know, it's crazy to think, though, um, that you've been retired from Caterpillar for five years. Uh, I mean, we've known each other for nearly 10, but, you know, you've, you've moved on and, and done some, you know, really neat things since then. Tell us what you're up to now. Yeah, I, you know, I'm taken aback by five years. It hasn't been, it hasn't, it hasn't been five years. Has it? I guess it has been four and a half. Anyway, yep. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, um, I was, I'm honored. I was, um, I was given an honorary title uh, this week, uh, Director Emeritus of the Central Illinois Center for the Blind and Visually Impaired. One of the things I wanted to do in retirement. Um, whatever retirement. Well, I'm, I'm going to stop you right there. I know you're, you know, technically yeah. you've left Caterpillar. Yeah, a, I, I don't it, know what, we're but, it, but in no way, shape or form, does anybody consider you retired? I, I, so, I, was gonna say, I don't, I, don't, I really, really know what that word means. Yeah. So right. uh, what I wanted to do when I left Caterpillar though, was work with some smaller companies and see whether what we did in the big companies translated into small, smaller companies, because I was a, you know, I worked for a Fortune 50 company for most of my career and was a director for the last 10 years. But I wanted to see, you know, is the nonprofit world different? And so the, 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 uh, the Blind Center was a great opportunity for me to go to see how that worked. And I've, and I've been focusing, I've been on the board, a very active member of the board for the last five years and focused on long-term viability of that organization that's been around since, since 1955. But um you know, and then, and then I retired. I wanted to step away. I wanted to retire from the board because it's in a really good place. And I wanted to, and I want to move, uh, my wife and I want to move to a warmer climate. So we just can't, I can't be involved day to day, but, um, uh, but it's in real, in a really good place right now. And I'm really honored that they want me to stay on as a, as an advisor to their, to the board and, uh, and, and to the subcommittees. And, uh, and I don't have to have I can't have an active involvement. I don't have a vote anymore, but um, I'm just honored to be a part of it uh, going forward. So really excited about that. 
And that that's a personal project for you too, right? I mean, that that means it's not just something that you have a a passion for and you want to give back because it's a smaller uh, company. You have a a personal passion for that, no? Well, I think don't you? You know, I found that one of the things about a nonprofit or about any charitable cause is that you know when your family is is touched by uh, by a, an issue those are the ones that you tend to uh, to support with your time and money. And my family has an inherited retinal disease, which, which I have. And, um, and so, yeah, I, so I've been involved with the blind center as I was involved with the blind center as a, as a, as a college student um, and uh, became involved later in life and which, you know, kind of one of the other projects that, that I'm involved with is the uh, at the university of Iowa, the Institute for vision research. I've also been spending a lot of, my personal time helping them they're developing um uh, what i like i'm using my words they're trying to democratize treatments for eye diseases and one of the one of the things you have to do to treat anything is to diagnose it first and the the means of diagnosis have been are kind of invasive for some of these for some of these conditions and uh so what i've been spending time on is an ipad app that um replaces some of the invasive methods for detecting um, cone-specific retinal disorders, which is in the, in the family of disease that affects my family. So, so it replaces some day-long, brutal, um, psychologically difficult testing with literally with an iPad app that a three-year-old can, can use. And uh, what we're, the plan is to provide this to ophthalmologists at no or low or very low cost uh, in the coming uh, in the coming year, so we'll see how that goes. But it's that's been a, a passion project as well. It's related to what's going on at Blind Center. Yeah, that's awesome um, and amazing to hear. You know, not just how you've been impacted by it, but how you've been able to make an impact on those that also share in that. So thank you for um, for getting personal there for a little bit. You know, today is is really unique and interesting because, you know, a part of why we wanted to put this podcast together was to learn more about how professionals like yourself approach innovation and, and use some of their, uh, you know, existing projects um, to not just create new uh, products or apps or services, but also uh, anybody can have an idea. It's also about how we commercialize those. So where you've had a really interesting career working for, you know, Titans of Industry at Caterpillar, um, amazing uh, organizations and nonprofit groups, and then some startups as well. You know, what has been your approach to innovation through your career and what can you share in terms of, you know, the, the pieces that you've taken from uh, companies and projects that you've been successful from? You know, we, we, could, uh, we could have this as a couple of part thing, but, uh, you know, I think first of all, I, you, you have to start off in my mind with a very clear definition of success. You know, what is it? What, what does innovation mean? And, um, and I think it, that, that probably has to vary with context, you know, what's your company and, you know, are you small or you big? And, but I really do like the, the size of organizations that I've historically worked in. I do like the Deloitte Doblin definition of core adjacent and transformational as, you know, core, core innovation is, is making what we currently do today better than it is. And that it could be, product, it could be service, it could be process, 
Um, and, and, but, but you need to have a clear definition about what core is and, and how, much of, how much of your innovation effort you want focused in on the core. And I would suggest that probably no more than 70% of, of your work should be really truly core. And, uh, but I think if you talk to most executives and, 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 re and get them off to the side and, and talk to them off camera, they'll tell you that probably 95 to 90, 98% of what they do is core. And then adjacent innovation is, you know, things that, that make sense, but they aren't, you know, they're, they're extensions of our current businesses or extensions of our product lines or services or, you know, extensions of what our customers need. Um, and, and that's probably 20% of the work that you should be doing. And then the last 10% is that true transformational, who would have ever thought we were going to do this uh, kind of work. And that probably, so I think of, you know, it ought, it ought to be some kind of portfolio management. And I think for big companies, Justin, this core adjacent transformational makes sense. But the smaller the company is, I think the less sense it makes. Because if you're small, your core business might be transforming an industry. So that, that distinction might not make any sense, the, you know, the smaller that you get. I, I, I'm, I would, you know, I'm working, you know, I can't, I can't figure out, I can't distinguish between core and transformational Hey, that's fun. Mm -hmm. uh, then the other thing that, and I'm going to, I'm going to pull, this is the quote I used long before I was associated with the Edison awards. You know, Edison said, anything that won't sell, I don't want to invent. Um, it's, it's sale is proof of utility and utility is success. So for me, you know, there's a, the huge, there's a huge difference though, between invention and, and innovation. I think what he really wanted to use was the word, was the word, in, in, you know, innovate in here. I mean, there's a huge difference between inventing something that you get a patent on and inventing something that may or may not have a patent that, that makes something happen for your customer, that, 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 that makes money for your customer, that makes money for your business. And for me, for me, the definition of innovation includes that, that money-making element. If, it, if, it, if in the businesses I worked in, if it didn't make money, it was cool, but that didn't make it innovative until it made money, if that makes sense. Yeah, of course. I, you know, that's, I feel like that's always a, a part of Edison and, and um, you know, some of the things that we have, uh, we talk about internally is, you know, innovation is really important, but, you know, a lot of people forget that uh, Edison was a master marketeer as well. And that led to, you know, incredible growth and, and the creation of industries. Those, just because he invented it didn't, didn't necessarily mean that the industry was going to be formed. He had to go out and, you know, Make sell it it because, yeah, yeah you, you right. told a story about, uh, to me, about uh, some, some projects at Caterpillar where, you know, and I don't know if you can elaborate, but if I recall correctly, you'd said that once you're in the room and everybody disagreed, you finally knew you were onto something. Yeah, one of my milestones, you know, you know, yeah, one of one of my milestones innovation was when I started getting, you know, competitors, whether they're internal ex or external competitors that didn't like the idea that I knew we really had something. Yep. And I and I don't, I, I I think the reason around this is that we all have these biases that we that we don't know we have, right? And and for me, innovation is about finding a way to break down those biases. Um, and, uh, and I've told a story about, and I think this happens in a lot of, in, of a lot of B2B type industrial companies where, 
you have a, an internal marketing organization that markets to your distribution arm that, that ultimately sells to the, end, to the end user customer. And everybody and everybody in that chain has preconceived notions or biases about, about what is needed. And, in, and I'll just talk, you know, the case about the, about the hybrid excavator. Um, you know, that was, our customers weren't asking for a hybrid excavator at all. They were asking for a machine that met their critical customer requirements. And I won't get into that, uh, what, those, what those are. I think that's something for Caterpillar to know um, and, keep, and keep confidential. But I think what we ultimately had to do was somehow we had to convince our internal marketing organization and our dealer network that it was something our customers would need. Uh, and what we and what we did was really circumvent our traditional marketing arm and go directly to, you know, we went past the we went to the trade press, uh, we went but we went to the innovation press like um, Fast Company is a good example, and we went to the business press, Forbes and Inc. and we create and 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 got these stories written about what we were doing and why it was valuable. And, um, and what happened was end user customers started coming to dealers who came to our marketing arm who came to us. And, and I, knew, I knew when um, I was at a trade show and a customer was standing with one of his dealer people and, and, and he said, that, uh, why can't I get one of those? And he pointed to the, to the hybrid excavator and the dealer person said, because I can't get it. And, um, uh, and we had, I built inventory for that, for just that situation. So we were able to satisfy a customer very quickly. Uh, but the, uh, but I got, after I picked the bus off, up, up off of myself, but, uh, um, but the key point for me was marketing to the end user customer, which is something that we didn't traditionally do. We, we traditionally marketed, as I said, to our dealer organization, and we really had to get to our end users in a new way. You know, that's a really interesting point because uh, you're talking about uh, an industry and a space very much like the automotive world that, you know, Tesla is disrupted by, you know, circumventing the dealers. I understand that they play a significant role in the core business of those two spaces, but, you know, you've also seen um, Tesla start to be successful in, in circumventing that. And that's, you know, that, that's a unique way to uh, raise awareness and, and generate buzz, you know, for the end, end consumer. Yeah. We, I mean, I grew up with these, with, with people in construction and, and literally from the time I was a little kid and they are, it's a mistake to think of them as conservative people. Um, they're not conservative, but they know their the successful ones know their costs extraordinarily well. And they off, and the ones that are really successful have a, a skill set that nobody else has. You know, they have, I hate the word niche. They have a specialty that everybody else, that nobody else has or that few others have. And they know their costs really, really well. So it's high risk to try a new product, okay? If it, if it throws their cost structure out of whack, and they miss bidding, bidding a large job. Um, it 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 impacts their bottom line tremendously, and their not to mention their reputation if if the thing doesn't work. It's sure. so it, it, it impacts future business as well. So to say they're conservative is is not the right description. But to say that they know what they need, and they know what works, um, and that they are and that they are 
conscious of the risk whenever they do something, try something new, hey, that, that, that characterizes them very well. So you've got to figure out how to, you know, really help them manage their risk as they try something new. And, and, um, and the best way to do that is to do it with them, you know, and, and, and get them directly involved, which we did in these projects. In fact, put machines in, into their hands very early on in the process uh, before they were anything close to being ready for production. Um, just to get some really solid feedback and experience from them about what worked and what didn't. So as you talk through that, you know, that kind of brings me into a a question I wanted to ask you about commercialization, because, you know, you're talking about a, you know, machine that costs, you know, millions of dollars to create a single one, right? You know, in the R&D and then, and then turn around and, and actually create marketing for that. So, you know, what, what was your approach to, you know, uh, to commercializing those ideas and innovation and the R and D and then, you know, going through and, and gaining, um, uh, success within the company and then, you know, the commercialization side of it would bringing it to market. And, and I guess how to, the second part of that would be, um, how does that compare, you know, to some of the startups or the, uh, or the, uh, Nonprofits that you're working with. Yeah, as well. no, that's a, that's it's that's a good question. I, I I hope I have a good answer for you, Justin. I mean, it you know, in a big company, the in, you know the executive office is the bank, you know, and and if I was doing a, a you know if I was going to develop a project to develop a product like this, I'm I'm essentially going to the executive office and I'm saying you know this is what my investment is going to be and this is, you know, what we're going to get. And by the way, this is how we're going to sell it. So you would have what, you know, a really well-developed plan for, you know, going to the executive office and saying, I need eight figures to develop a new product, a new product is, you know, not only would I have that new product in my mind, you know, what it was going to be functionally, how it was going to be technically, but I needed to tell them how we were going to sell it. I needed, I needed to go in with what the mark, what the arguments were, what are the sales arguments that we're going to, that we're going to make and how does the product support those arguments? And so, you know, again, it's a B2B world. So we're talking B2B. So, you know, it's, you know, and how do I, how do I, you know, work with my marketing arm within the company to develop those sales arguments and translate them to the dealer world uh, and, you know, so that, that we can actually turn that into a sale. So again, I, so for me, so for me, I had to have, I felt like I had to have, um, you know, on one eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, this is what my, these are my sales arguments. This is my marketing plan, if that makes sense. I mean, I wanted it really crisp before I went to the bank and asked for any money. Does that make sense? Yeah, does it, it absolutely does. Does it, does that, differ from the startup side of things that you are involved with or that you've seen? I don't think it's, you know, it's, um, I find the money on the startup side to be harder to get in some ways. Um, and it's, you know, sometimes if, if it's someone that's, that's, that's bankroll and is passionate about a pro about an idea, that's, that's easier. Um, if it's, if it's a case where, um, you've got a finite amount of time to hit a marketplace and it's something that nobody's ever done before. Um, it's, it's a, it's, it can be more difficult to, to get 
to get that money. So I actually think that I actually think that uh, I actually I'll tell you I'll just I'll just be I'll just be completely transparent as I'm known as I'm as I'm prone to be. I thought it was going to be easier. I, I mean I really you, did. I, what made I, you think I, that? I I don't know. Because it had to be greener, grass had to be greener on the other side of the hill, <laughs> I guess. I don't know. And I thought it had to be easier. I mean, it's hard to go to the Caterpillar Executive Office and get money, and it ought to be, right? I mean, it ought to be hard. Right. I mean, they've got shareholders they're taken care of, and, and it ought to be difficult. But I, th I just thought it couldn't possibly be more difficult than that. Well, it is. Because <laughs> now we're talking about... We're talking about smaller numbers, but we're talking about investments that are a higher percentage of an investor's, you know, net worth than than going to ask, than the, than going to ask the executive office for money. And I, I think what happened, what, I think the reason it's more difficult is because there's a big emo, there's so much more emotional content in it uh, in the in the startup and nonprofit world than there is in the in the in the, in the corporate world, if that makes sense. Yeah, of course. There definitely is. You know, you find, um, you were saying about the good uh, operators that have, you know, businesses that run those heavy machines, you know, that the, the, the really good ones know every dollar and where it comes from. And they, oh, can, yeah. they can name those dollars when they go and invest in a, for example, hybrid excavator for, you know, they, they're they also, they were taking a risk, um, you know, purchasing those uh, and putting them into their fleet, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, the very best, the very, in fact, the very best ones that I know in the world, not only know what the cost of a machine is per hour, they know what the revenue generated by that machine is. Absolutely. And, I mean, and, you know, I mean, they're the best. And those, and those, uh, so, you know, by that same token, investors that are, are looking for their next deal, ask those questions and look at it from the same perspective. And so when you, when you come at it uh, and you come at them and asking them for, you know, investment into an idea, I find if the entrepreneur doesn't have that passion and have those visions um, to be able to tell the story of what it is they've done, what they're doing now, and more importantly, where they're going, then then that money becomes you know near impossible to get. Well, I, do, I, I tell you, I do think that one thing that really translates is that innovation, in my mind, has has three. You know, there are three cores here. It's it's people, culture, and vision. Mm -hmm. And you you spark that thought with your with the comment about you know telling the story about the inspiring vision. I mean, you know. So how you know I said it earlier that innovation is about breaking our biases. You know, well, you know how do we do that? You know, we do that with having the right people, the right culture, and the right vision. Well, so what? What does what does all that mean? I mean, you know, first of all, I mean, you really have to have the right team, and it doesn't matter whether it's a startup or a, or 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 it's corporate America or, the, or anywhere in the world. You really have to have diversity in this team that. It has a couple things. It has it has domain experience. I mean, I always wanted people on my team that had tremendous domain experience within within construction and mining. But I also wanted people that had tremendous experience in maybe it's analytics or or you know maybe it's pure marketing experience. I've told a story a number of times. One of my favorite moves I ever made was to put an anthropologist on a product development team because she brought a completely different perspective to the work 
than than anyone else in the, than anyone else in the, than anyone else in the room had. So did you did you recruit her specifically for the position, or was that yeah, somebody, yeah. She, that was like a passion on the side that she was doing within Caterpillar? No, this was she was specific for the position. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was one of the. I think it was one of the accidentally one of the one of those one of those accidents that made uh, made us look really really smart that we brought that we brought an anthropologist on the team. But her perspective was completely different. Yeah, um, and you know, especially when we were trying to to define what successful innovation on a project was, and it was a it was a really interesting perspective that she brought uniquely brought to the to the table that that, that no one else that no one else had. And um, then I think the second, even then I think the second element is, as I think, mutual trust of everyone on the team, and is you know amongst among everyone on the team, and and trust for the people above us that are giving us the money. And I, I think so in a in a corporate setting, I don't think that's a whole lot different than it is in a in this in a you know in a small entrepreneurial setting that you still have to have that. And, you know, it, you've got to give your investors have to have a huge part of, of what you do, uh, you know, to get, get the money and to, to get the money to do the project. And whereas in corporate, in the corporate world, the, the officers or executive officers that, that control the purse strings uh, that manage the purse, the purse strings, they're the ones that, that you have to engage in the process. So it's a, it's a, it's a mutual trust building experience where, you know, I'm going to be experimenting with the, with the direction that we're on. And, I'm, and, and, I, and I trust that you're going to have my back as we make mistakes along the way that, that impact our, that impact our vision. And, and, and then that gets to this other, this other thing about having an, what's an inspiring vision. Um, it, it doesn't do enough. It, it's not enough anymore. It used to be when I was, and when I came out of school and went into business, it was enough that your, that your, that your direction was about making money. That's just not nearly enough today. Um, I mean, you've got to have a reason. You have to have a reason for existing and why, why was the hybrid excavator important? And, you know, you know, why did it matter that, you know, why did it matter that it produced, you know, that it produced so much lower emissions, you know, why, why are these things important? Sure, it did these things. Why did that matter? So having an inspiring vision and being able to tell that story and then, and then allowing people to experiment around that vision and, and giving them the latitude to experiment around, around the vision and affect the vision, influence the division, inform that vision with the outcomes of their experiments are just a critical part of being successful. And I think that translates really well into the, uh, in fact, I'm, I, I, think, I think big business learned that approach from, um, from, from the entrepreneurial world, from the, from the startup and nonprofit world. I, I think, I'm not sure who taught it to who, but I, but I think that we learned a lot in, in the corporate world about having in our ecosystem of people and, and contacts um, people that had worked in smaller businesses and, you know, worked face to face with customers or um, in, in dealerships or, you know, in construction companies. Uh, I always, always wanted to have an operator on my development team, for example, somebody that really, that really got it, that really, really was accustomed to getting dirty out there every day and getting the job done. So, and I'm, I'm rambling around here. And I no, so, you know, we got, but, but I, I really think these are, I really think these are keys. These, this mutual trust, the inspiring direction, and the and the freedom to experiment around that inspiring direction or vision. Um, I think those are all all really really key. 
I think that we could go and talk about these topics for, for hours, Ken, if I'm going to be honest. <laughs> and I think, I, think um, done, I think we've done that before. Yeah, no, I, I think we may have. Um, I, I think we may have. A bottle of wine may have been involved. So, um, I, you know, I, I want to I go on to, and maybe we'll have, a, we'll do a, another podcast in and around culture because, you know, one of the thoughts I've had more recently has been, I've been, I've been about that with this pandemic that's engulfed the, the world, not just the a region or the United States, it's, but the whole world. You know, you, you say a lot that um, uh, corporations learn some improvements in culture from startup, but the, the startup started because they were pushing back against the culture of the corporations, right? And, yeah. And today, today in the pandemic that we're in the midst of, not to timestamp this or anything, but you know that that's where we're starting right now. Um, that's why we're not together, right? So, um, a lot of companies and uh, corporations are going to have the ability because everybody's working from home or they're doing work from home, and I think there's a distinction there too. And that's another topic to the. To, distinguish between working from home and doing work from home because there are so many responsibilities that folks have today that are, are above and beyond, you know, um, punching a clock or, you know, or, um, or answering a phone. And as a result of, of all this that's going on, I think one of the things that we'll see out of this is the really smart companies are going to be able to almost reset and refresh the culture when everybody comes back because they're going to have an opportunity. Um, nobody's going to be integrating right from new roles or new positions or, you know, when, when people come back, it's going to be like your first day of school every year, right? Everybody's starting from zero yeah. and the really good companies that have some foresight right now are, you know, covertly, you know, planting seeds to, and I don't even know if it's covert, it may be over as well, you know, yeah. where they're, they're planting seeds to improve that company culture. And you'll see those, those, um, those bad grapes and sour apples will be removed really quickly because there's going to be so much that, and there is today so much to be thankful for, you know, when you have your health and you have the things that are good in, in and around you. So I, I look forward to that. And I think you're, you're spot on with a people culture and vision statement and, and, um, you know, that's certainly made you successful through your career. And, and I'm so thankful that you've, you know, taken the time to participate in this project on the podcast and have inspired minds with me. So, you know, um, any, any, anything to wrap up? You know, I, I think, um, you know, good things will, I mean, as, as painful as this is, and, you know, our thoughts and prayers with everybody suffering with this right now, but, um, you know, there will be positive outcomes from this. We will, we will learn from this, um, as you say. And, um, you know, timing is everything. There are opportunities to help right now that are going to be gone in a month. Yeah. Uh, it will be too late for in a month, which is a topic we didn't get into, but timing is everything uh, in, in, in innovation. And there are a lot, many innovative ideas are, are on a shelf somewhere because the timing wasn't right. So, Now's the time. It's there is there is an opportunity to help right now uh, that will be that will pass. Um, and but if you are able to help right now, um, you can make a huge difference. So um, 
Absolutely. That's uh, extremely well said. Uh, and, and again, you know, I, I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to uh, participate on this in this and, um, you know, be a member of the steering committee. It's so, so exciting to catch up and, and hear about all the success that you're having, you know, in, in, um, in so many different spaces. So, you know, thanks for joining me today. Oh, hey, Justin, thank you so much for having me. And, and I look forward to the next time we talk. Good deal. Until next time, you've been listening to Inspiring Minds, brought to you by the Edison Awards. My name is Justin Starbird. Until next time. You have been listening to the Inspiring Minds podcast, presented by the Edison Awards. On behalf of our guest today and host, Justin Starbird, thank you for listening. Please share your feedback on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Edison Awards. If you have a great guest idea or want to share your inspiring story, please email Justin at justin at edisonawards.com for consideration. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Minds podcast.